Welcome to The Root Problem, a podcast brought to you by Project Lotus. Your hosts are Ethan Durham and Kevin Lay. We're here to discuss our own experiences with mental health in Asian culture, talk to others about their stories, debunk common stereotypes, cover current events, and explore sensitive topics that your Asian parents might have told you not to talk about. For more information related to Asian American mental health and culture, please check out the Project Lotus website, www.theprojectlotus.org, as well as our Instagram, at Project Lotus Oregon. To access the crisis text line, text HOME to 741741. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the pilot episode. Thank you so much for joining us today in your home, in your car, or maybe you're on a walk. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. My name is Kevin Lay. I'm a 16-year-old sophomore, soon to be junior, at Sunset High School. I'm Chinese-American, but I was actually born in Toronto, Canada. Fun fact. What do I like to do? I like to swim. I like to eat. Of course, who doesn't like to eat? I love to go hiking, and I love to hang out with my friends. Particularly, I like to hang out with this guy. For sure, for sure. My name's Ethan Durham. I'm also a 16-year-old at Sunset High School, soon to be a junior. I am half Vietnamese, half American, born and partially raised in Texas, born in Austin. So I also like to eat food. I love food. Um, and I also enjoy basketball. So, Kevin, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, Ethan, the main purpose of Project Lotus as an organization is to destigmatize mental health in Asian American communities and also to debunk the model minority myth. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Um, what's, th- what's the model minority myth, Kevin? Well, Ethan, I'm glad you asked, because later in the podcast, we'll be going over the model minority myth and talk to Shirley Lay and Erica Tan. Shirley Lay is a licensed clinical psychologist and staff psychologist at Pacific University with a doctoral degree in psychology from Adler University. Erica Tan, on the other hand, has been a licensed clinical psychologist for 15 years with a doctoral degree in psychology from Regent University. So they're very knowledgeable in all things mental health, and we'll be able to talk to them about what the model minority myth is, the origins of the model minority myth, and the implications of the model minority myth today. Wow, that's impressive. I'm, I'm glad. I'm looking forward to talking to them. Me too. So let's talk a little bit more about our own experiences with mental health as Asian Americans. To start off, let's talk about why we joined Project Lotus. For me, um, growing up in Texas as a, as a weird have you know, half Asian, half white, um, I've always had these, these two backgrounds uh, in the back of my head about how I was supposed to act. Like, should I act more white? Should I act more Asian? You know, I was never really like all the other kids uh, that I was growing up around. So that definitely had some impacts on my upbringing. So by joining Project Lotus, I hoped to create that safe space for people that were like me, maybe uh, people that had those two cultures behind them that were maybe clashing. That's great, Ethan. For me, I feel a lot of the similar things, but I feel like my own struggles with being Asian American and mental health go deeper into who I am as a person. Um, I think a big part of Eastern culture is the idea of collectiveness and that the individual is more a part of a whole than their own individual unique self. And for me, I feel like this doesn't provide a lot of leeway for uniqueness and individuality. I feel like I don't relate a lot to the ideal image of a Chinese man. And this can make it difficult for me to feel like I belong in the community and also feel like I can speak out and be myself at times. 
So for me, I wanted to join Project Lotus because I wanted to help show others that it's okay to be different and it's okay to differ from the norm of your culture or society, I guess. Yeah, as Asian Americans, I feel like there's a lot of pressure placed on us to perform a certain way and act a certain way. Yeah, I agree, especially when it comes to school. I feel like my parents at times put a lot of pressure on me to do well in school and not just school, to be honest, also other stuff outside of school, like extracurriculars, sports at times. What do you think? I agree with you, Kevin, but I think it's important to also note that it's not just parents putting pressure on us. It's also our our community, the people around us, society. Um, obviously, there's a lot of stereotypes that come with being Asian, like you have to be um, top for like you have to be the top performer in your class. You have to be good at math. You know, you have to eat weird foods. Those stereotypes, right? Well, I think I definitely eat a lot of weird food. I tend to stick away from those weird foods, but that's just my preference. Oh wow, yeah. If I'm being honest, a lot of my personal experience does relate to that stress that I feel around wanting to succeed for my future. Um, a lot of the times even recently, in recent weeks, with the COVID-19 pandemic, I've been very scared for my future because of the how unsure it is, I guess. I thrive off of order and stability, and because everything in the world right now is not stable at all, I'm a little terrified of what's going to happen in the coming weeks, the coming months, the coming years. Yeah, me too. A lot of things in my life, like a lot of plans that I've had uh, that I that I made like such a long time ago are all coming to a halt uh, all of a sudden. And I think that a lot of Asian Americans are dealing with similar experiences. I think that in the Asian American community, planning out your life and doing well in the future, preparing yourself, dedicating your your life to academics and preparing yourself for your future is something so important and so valued in the Asian American community. And I think that this coronavirus, this this whole pandemic is is really thrown a wrench in a lot of Asian parents' plans. I agree. And I think one of the troubles of being a teenager, not just an Asian American teenager, but teenagers in general, is that not a lot of us have a space where we can let this out. Like there is therapy, but I think a lot of teenagers at times can be scared of the idea of therapy. And I think that's why we wanted to create this podcast. We wanted to be able to talk about these issues freely as two Asian American teenagers and show everyone that it's okay to talk about our struggles. It's okay to be it's okay to be vulnerable and talk about our struggles, what we're dealing with, topics that are sensitive. And I think by having having this podcast we're creating that safe space. And that's what Project Lotus is all about. So, what are some specific mental health issues or topics that you feel strong about and want to address, Ethan? Mhm. As it pertains to being Asian American or? Yeah, as it pertains to Asian American or just being a teenager in general. Well, I definitely feel like since mental health is often overlooked in the Asian American communities, it forces these these uh, teenagers in specific to keep all of their problems inside themselves. And it keeps them, it forces them to bottle up any problems that they have and just suck it up, toughen up and like try to stick it through until it on, until they all go away. But as we've seen, as I've seen in my own personal life, 
as I've seen in some of my friends' lives, it's not good to bottle stuff up. It's not it's not good to keep everything to yourself because you shouldn't be afraid to admit that you need help sometimes. You know, I, one of the first keys in 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 solving your problems is addressing it. Like you need to def- you need to know what your problem is so that you can tackle it head on, right? By bottling it up, sweeping it under the rug, that's not going to do anything. If anything, it's going to make it worse. I agree. I definitely agree. I think a big issue in our current generation is we don't talk about topics. And more importantly like that than that, like you mentioned, we like to bottle everything up and just sweep it under the rug, just ignore it. And when we're doing that, we're not letting our emotions and our thoughts come out. And that is actually really important. I, yeah, We need to be able to express how we're feeling and not just sweep it under the rug. And I think to start, it's good to have a, like a good outlet to release the stress and emotions we've been feeling throughout the day, throughout the week. And I'm really glad that I swim as a sport because I feel like it offers a great outlet to just let everything out. And um, it saddens me that some people like don't have that outlet. And it doesn't just have to be sports. Like I know a lot of people who like to let things out through dancing not not saying that dancing is a sport. I think dancing is pretty tough, don't you think? Dancing is very tough. I I think that yeah. I think that a sport is is something that you work at, right? And I think that dancing definitely takes some dedication, put a lot of hours in. So yeah, I'd consider it a sport. Right. But well, we're digressing. as I was saying, as I was saying, I think it's important to have an outlet such as art, cooking, yeah, anything. Just pursue some hobbies. Belly you know? dancing. Oh, belly dancing. That's a good one. Yeah. I should look into that. that. Um, definitely for me, basketball. Basketball's been my outlet. Um, it's given me the opportunity to build connections with the people around me, as well as track. I also, I'm also a runner. All those runners out there. Okay. Put flex. some respect on my name. Um, nearly a 10-second 100. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we're supposed to be on varsity this year. At Sunset High School, did not get the chance because of the COVID pandemic, but it's okay. Hopefully, uh, track season comes back next year and I'll be ready then. But yeah, being able to to express your your problems to other people, like sh- just share your emotions with other people, it's really helpful. It's really beneficial to you and your mental health. Um, you know, so th- there's this there's this this triangle that we learn in school. It's called the wellness triangle, right? It has these these three sides to it. Um, mental health, physical health, and then what's that last one? Emotional health. Emotional health, right? And so like by tackling your, you need a support system, right? You need a support system to, uh, what's the word, uphold? Uphold the triangle, make sure all sides are balanced and all sides are standing strong. Yeah, you need uh, you need that support system. Maybe it's, th- maybe it's found through sports or maybe it's found through study groups or like shared interest right you need you need those support systems to uphold um your emotional health your mental health right and it can even help with physical health you know you go work out with some buddies um and and encourage your friends to eat healthier stuff like that but moral of the story here is that people need people um people need people to be healthy live better lives just overall people need people to thrive in their lives right people boost the quality of boost the quality of life and nobody wants to live a boring bland tasteless life unhealthy life we need people definitely agree 
we need people to be able to talk about our problems with. And I know in society, we assume that that people should be our parents, right? They're there, they're there. Our parents are there to support us. We should be able to talk about our problems with them. But I know a lot of people, um, even myself, who don't feel comfortable talking to their talking to their parents about their problems. And although that's definitely something you should work at, you should work towards being comfortable with your parents and talking about sensitive issues that you're dealing with. If you're not comfortable talking to your parents, there are plenty of other people you can talk to and go to go to with your problems your friends your coaches your teachers even your counselors so i just want everyone to know that no matter what your situation is like there is always going to be at least one person you can talk to about your problems and make sure to go to them and not just bottle up all your emotions and let it brew into this nasty stew of cesspool depression depression and anger sadness yeah right Um, well said cesspool of sadness so i think depending on the culture the relevance of mental health can be a little bit different and i think this especially holds true for being asian american what do you think in the asian american community um we tend to prioritize other facets of life such as academics um, or family success, you know, we, we kind of overlook mental health. Uh, when in reality, mental health is one of the most important things that we should be focusing on. Um, if you have a healthy mental state, you'll be able to perform better, you know, in all those other facets of your life. So it's definitely something to consider. I agree. As someone who's dealt with mental health issues in the past, I think as Asian Americans, we're we're taught to oppress this and even fear it and this leads to us like not being able to solve the issues that we experience and i think it wasn't until i was able to find a good support group of friends that i was able to overcome this yeah me too i think the main issue that affects me right now is probably dealing with stress and dealing with family conflicts for me i often deal with pressure from my family or my brother Um, a lot of them are very successful people even my extended family they're all pretty successful and you know they're, they're all doctors pharmacists you know the usual for me I often find myself having to work hard to live up to this standard this expectation of this this pathway that I don't even know if I chose you know um I definitely agree with that sentiment how we're supposed to live up to our family's success but for me, I think it's not just success, but also sacrifice. Um, by coming to the United States, um, having to learn a completely new language almost overnight, having to adjust to that cultural shift, my parents definitely had to go through a lot. And I'm very grateful um, and thankful that they sacrificed so much so that my sister and I could have a better future. But... I feel like because my family sacrificed so much, I feel like there's this pressure on me that I also have to be willing to sacrifice a lot. And by sacrificing things, I mean like sacrificing the things I enjoy, hanging out with friends, who I am as a person, my emotions. Yeah, moreover on the topic of sacrifice, my mom, she's uh, she's beaten me. She was born there. Um, she actually had to move over to the 
United States because of the Vietnam War, right? And so she had to make a lot of sacrifices in her life. And I think that a lot of that pressure often comes to wanting to make those sacrifices worth it, you know, wanting to make those the sacrifices that our parents made amount to something, amount to success in our in their children's lives, you know? And so, right, nobody wants to let their parents down. Nobody wants to be a disappointment. And I think that yeah. that is a fear in Asian American households. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're both very grateful for all the stuff our parents have gone through. And I feel like now, in current times, we're starting to get a little bit of the feel for what our parents had to go through in terms of discrimination, racial prejudice, inequality. Um, the past few weeks have definitely be, been an insane time, don't you agree? Yes, the last few weeks and probably even this year. This year has been a mess thus far. It's been, it's been crazy. Yeah. Um, Why don't we take a little moment to come up with like a short list of the insane things that have happened in 2020 well obviously the covid pandemic right that that's obviously the big thing destroyed everything right um kobe bryant kobe bryant's death oh yeah i know that hit you hard yeah, that was sad Tragic. yeah um the discovery of ufos those, those that australian thing? bushfires but australian oh bushfires. yeah i saw that what the heck discovery that was insane i was like what is this the end of the world whoa it definitely is the, end of the world, the um, world is definitely ending 2020 yeah that's that seems like a nice round number to end the world at you know yeah like if if, mm-hmm. if there was an alien that was going to write a book obviously they'd want to they'd want like the title would be like 2020 Boom, 2020 is done. clean it's clean it's a clean number. it's a clean number it's not like it's not like 20 it's not like 2087 all right um what else we've we've seen there was an impeachment trial for donald trump yeah, the impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, the murder hornets. Oh, the murder hornets. You know, I didn't really look into that that much, but... Uh, I can't. Yeah, I, it's I, scary. That just only increased my fear of insects. Yeah, incest is pretty scary. Did you say incest? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and for me, as a huge basketball fan, the NBA canceling their season, I was pretty disappointed about that. But, you wow, know, they're, they're struggle. starting things back up. Yeah. And I think what's most relevant in the news right now that we definitely want to address in this episode is the current events surrounding Black Lives Matter. Um, the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Elijah McClain, they're disgusting, they're scary, they need to be talked about and they need to be addressed. And all cultures, all people, including Asian Americans, need to step up and show support for this movement and vouch for equality for the black population because black lives do matter. Yeah, I agree with you. The whole Black Lives Matter movement is really important. Um, I'm really glad that people are taking action on something that's wrong with society, you know? I feel like it's necessary. It's been necessary for a while now. And I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad people are being held responsible for, um, for their actions. I agree. Change needs to be made and change needs to be made very, very soon because this has been going on for far too long. And Ethan, and I hope that through this episode, as we talk a little bit about model minority, the idea of model minority, the model minority myth and how it creates a divide between 
the Asian population and the black population, we can start to debunk the stereotypes that are associated with either culture and help bring our two populations together and support each other. Yeah. Looking forward to talking about this further with uh, Shirley and Erica. Continue listening as we discuss and debunk the model minority myth with Shirley Lay and Erica Tan. Hello, everyone. Um, now we're joined by Shirley Lay and Erica Tan. Um, as we previously previously mentioned, Shirley Lay is a licensed clinical psychologist, and Erica Tan is also a licensed clinical psychologist. We're going to talk a little bit um, today about the model minority myth and try to we're going to try to discuss some of the stereotypes associate, associated with them and try to debunk the myth a little bit. And so I'm going to let my two guests introduce themselves. Hey, Project Lotus fam. My name is Shirley Lay. Uh, she, her pronouns. I'm a staff psychologist and equity, diversity, inclusion, outreach coordinator at Pacific University in Oregon. Sweet. My name is Erica Tan. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I'm a trainer and a clinician on the teen and family team at Portland DBT Institute in Portland, Oregon. Very official. <laughs> and how are you two doing today? I'm not doing too bad. Um, I love how on the weekends I get to indulge in my uh, K-dramas. So I've been doing that. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> That's amazing. I went skateboarding this morning and that was super fun. So I promised my wife I would not break anything and I kept my promise. <laughs> um, yeah, I went blueberry picking yesterday. So that was fun. Um, it was like the first day of like blueberry season, so we got like a lot of good blueberries. I'm gonna make some jam, I think, today. Wow, nice. that's pretty cool. Wow, good for you. Yeah, for me, um, I did some SAT prep, some SAT <laughs> prep work, you know. Oh, so fun! This, it was pretty fun. <laughs> wow, you're amazed. dedicated. I feel lazy compared to you. <laughs> gotta, gotta get it done, you know. Nice, love it. Mm-hmm. So previously, we've talked a little bit about the pressures placed on Ethan and I as Asian Americans, both by um, society and our parents and also by ourselves. And I think this pressure kind of relates a lot to the model minority myth. So for our viewers, I just want to take a second and explain what exactly the model minority myth is for anyone who's um, not familiar with it. Um, basically, the idea of a model minority is an ethnic minority demographic um, population or group whose members are perceived by society or others to achieve a higher degree of success, whether it be economics-wise, socially-wise, um, education-wise. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's it. Okay. <laughs> nice. So I think when we discuss the model minority myth, it's important to first talk about where the this idea comes from and the kind of the history of Asian Americans and how they've been perceived in America in general. And so we should talk a little bit about the history of it. So I'm just going to read a little excerpt I have from the Beneficial State Foundation. Chinese laborers first immigrated to the U.S. when labor was in great demand during the California gold rush and the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. When golden jobs became scarcer and competition increased, White working class laborers feared losing their jobs to immigrant workers. As a result, 
the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was created, prohibiting all immigration of Chinese laborers until it was repealed in 1943. During this time, Chinese Americans, and later other Asian communities, were portrayed as the yellow peril, threatening, exotic, and a menace. Between 1882 and the end of World War II, Asian Americans faced large-scale violence, including massacres in Rock Springs, Wyoming, Hell's Canyon, Oregon, and Los Angeles. After World War II, when it was politically convenient for the U.S., yellow perils quickly became model minorities. At the end of World War II and beginning of this Cold War, the U.S. began to fear its exclusion of Chinese immigrants would hurt its allyship with China against Japan. The Magnuson Act was passed in 1943 to allow a selected few Chinese immigrants into the country, beginning the narrative shift that would take place. Proponents of the repeal strategically recast Chinese in promotional materials as law-abiding, peace-loving, courteous people living quietly among us instead of the yellow peril coolie hordes. A new narrative about Asians was created, one that portrayed Asians as a group who successfully assimilated despite experiencing racism in America. In 1966, sociologist William Peterson published an article in which he described Japanese Americans as ethnic minorities who, despite marginalization during World War II, achieved success in the U.S. due to Asian culture's strong work ethic and family values. This marked the beginning of Asians stereotyped as model minorities, a stereotype which still exists today. So that was just a little bit more information about the history of Asian American discrimination in both praise, I guess, in the U.S. And I think when it comes to like any issue, it's really interesting to examine the history of it and the origins of where um, our pers perspectives come from. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. I feel like the I feel like it's really important to determine like the root cause where where all these stereotypes originate from, um, perhaps to debunk them and you know discuss them further. Like, I think it's helpful to have historical context. And it also, I think it's also, it, it's helpful to consider that these beliefs are also perpetuated with new Im immigrant families who come over. You know, my parents emigrated in 1967 to Canada from Singapore and Malaysia. And they just fell in line with this particular set of beliefs. I have to work hard in order for me to be successful, in order for me to be able to provide for my kids, like don't get into trouble, just do the things that are asked, like don't make a lot of noise. And so I think some of the values that are a part of Asian culture just, and it's also a reflection of reality. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think for me, history is important. So just to give um, our, our listeners a little bit of context of my own positionality and, and how I, I draw my perspectives um, for this work. Um, so the counseling work that I do is informed by a, a racial justice and anti-oppressive lens. And so um, everything that I do is um, constantly rooted at looking at some of the structural determinants of health. Um, what are the systems and structures that are in place that, that keep people um, ill, um, feeling... Uh, uneasy, feeling uncomfortable, feeling inadequate. Um, so context, historical context is really important because it helps us understand and, you know, give origins to some of the anxieties that we feel, um, inadequacies uh, as an AAPI person. Um, oftentimes we come into this world feeling a sense of like 
lackness, you know, I lack this or lack that, not feeling competent or, or confident in, in certain areas. Um, and if we don't contextualize those emotional reactions, sensations to something that's structural in nature, what ends up happening is that we internalize that experience, thinking that there's something internally defective or wrong about us. Um, and so um, I think it's, it's wonderful, uh, Kevin, that you gave a really good overview of um, what the model minority stereotype means. And um, I have a tendency to pull back a little bit more and to ask, you know, who created this um, perception of us in the first place. Um, and if we really pull back, we're looking at white colonizers, um, folks who uh, utilize uh, this way of looking at us uh, so that it keeps us in under their control and it also um, pits us against other uh, racialized groups so having that context historical information is important so that we can connect our current pain to all the way back to the times um, when uh, aapi folks were were marginalized otherized um, inferiorized erased some, like the coolies who were stolen from their lands, pulled into the American context. Um, so that pain gets passed on ancestrally. So we got to know what the origins of it so that um, we can then attach our current experiences to uh, historical um, experiences so that what we're feeling now isn't out of context. Oftentimes people ask, you know, why do I feel this pain? And they don't know. They don't have the words. They don't have the sense, right? It's just the notion of something's off. So connecting it to past experiences, um, historical experiences and ancestral experiences is important for that reason, um, mm -hmm. from my perspective. Um, you mentioned um, how a lot of the, the, like the box that we are sort of like placed in has been placed on us by, by white colonizers, right? Um, I've, and I, I think that is true. And I feel like in the modern day, what's sad is that a lot of Asian Americans don't realize um, where this box has come from or this like this cage sort of that we've been placed in. I've always like associated being Asian with being smart, being successful. And it wasn't until I truly started looking into the model minority myth and the origins of it that I realized that that these stereotypes come from a place of discrimination and marginalization or I guess like the association this the association isn't as innocent as I thought once thought it was what do you think Ethan mm -hmm. yeah I feel like the model minority myth has kind of been um it's kind of been used for false flattery you know it, like some some people may may ask um I remember I was asked this one time when I when I like when I kind of gave some someone who approached me some context about this whole myth um they came up to me and they said something about how oh you're asian that's why you're really good at math you know like it it kind of like takes away from um an individual success um kind of labeling labeling them as someone um who they should be it's kind of like this this script that's written for you you have to be good at this this and this um but when you are, it's because you're Asian, right? It's not because you worked hard. Um, it's because you're Asian. So you're kind of like born into it. And some people may may think that, oh, well, that's just, that's a compliment, right? Oh, you're Asian. Wow, you're, you're Asian. You're really smart. You're a smart guy. Um, but I feel like 
that that false flattery that that um applaud to Asians it's it's not really yeah it, it's false flattery well and like what what Shirley was saying earlier it kind of takes the person out of context too mm-hmm. right when you are on the receiving end of that false flattery and that stereotyping they're not looking at well actually Ethan you've put in like 15 hours this week studying for SATs Exactly. That's why you're going to do really well. It's not because not because you're Asian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that statistics play a big part in this too. I think that when, um, like, I, I, I always see those, like, standardized tests where you have to, like, mark your, your race, your ethnicity, um, and they kind of, like, categorize you into this, this group, right? Um, and then they assign a number to you, right? That's, I don't know, it, it just seems kind of wrong to me. Um, really, I feel like what's happening is that intended or unintended, um, I feel like we're like, what's the word? Disparaging. We're disparaging other, um, racial minorities by having this model minority myth. But I think it also gets perpetuated within Asian culture. Like, I don't know about any of you growing up, but like my parents would periodically in Chinese, like in Mandarin, it was like, you know, black, white, Italian, Jewish, whatever. And then the vernacular was the use of the word gui, which means ghost instead of jren, which means person. And so that was just how, like, my father in particular would re- refer to, um, you know, other ethnicities. And I remember asking him one time, like, why do you say that? Like, why can't you just say Haitian, which means black person, instead of hei and he just said, well, that's just what we always do. And I was like, I didn't understand it as a kid. Yeah, I see. Um, it's perpetual. Yeah. And so it was just part of what he grew up with, and he didn't question it. Mm-hmm. So I think unless we're questioning why we do certain things, we're just going to perpetuate certain practices, certain behaviors, certain thoughts, certain values, certain you know, emotional experiences that are not accurate. So that's why it's important to look at that history, for sure. Shirley, um, why do you think that we haven't yet been able to fully reject this, these stereotypes that are placed around us? Like, why is it, why are we not at that point yet where we can, Asian Americans can ignore these, like, stereotypes that are commonly associated mm-hmm. with being Asian American and just, like, be okay with just, like, being ourselves? That's a really good question. Um, I want to say to folks out there who are listening that this is a very complex question, right? And so, um, I don't want to give a simplified answer. Um, I want to give a nuanced answer and, um, you know, related to what Ethan was talking about, we don't want to get reduced to a simple answer. Um, I, I want to say, I want to acknowledge the, the diversity within the AAPI community. Uh, we're not a homogenous group. And I, even though there are certain characteristics that, that string us together. So um, my response is a, a double layered one. Um, the first, and this is something that I'm still grappling with, um, some of the uh, stereotypes that are put on us, um, deference to family, deference to authority, um, uh, being obedient, following the rules. Um, so much of that is tied to our Confucius background, our cultural heritage. So, um, I fear that if we throw it all out the door, 
my biggest fear is that then I don't know who I am as a person. These are the values that have been imprinted in me um, growing up, and there are some of it that um, I still want to keep. Um, I loved how Erica, uh, you know, gave a really good example of, okay, here's one um, social practice that, that I grew up with that I don't like because it conflicts with my values, and so I want to change it in some way. Um, but Erica didn't say anything about, I'm just going to throw all of my cultural values out, right? She's, she's updating her cultural values, right? There are pieces that just are no longer relevant or that it's rooted in, in, in um, white supremacist views. And so I loved how, it, you know, there's certain pieces in her interaction with her dad that she decides she would like to pursue in, in updating and, and creating differences in. Um, so there's that piece uh, is that as human beings, we got to have some kind of grounding, something to hold on to, right? Our, our cultural heritage is really important. Um, there's very important pieces that we do need to hold on to because it roots us in, in who we are as people and uh, gives us a sense of where, where we're going in the future. So um, I would say uh, it's hard to let go of the, the stereotype because it is rooted in something that, that is, that is good to us. That is, uh, informs us who, of who we are as people. Um, and so going through, you know, all our values and, and updating them, um, to see if they're relevant still. And, uh, and I think connection with family is a beautiful thing. Let us not throw that out. <laughs> um, but how do we connect with family? Which pieces we want to connect on, right? That we can do some updating. So that's one layer of the conversation. Um, the second layer is that um, our uh, AAPI folks, they've relied on being um, close to whiteness, right? Being white adjacent. So being as, as white as possible uh, without having to actually even Growing up, I've had friends who changed, uh, who put on contact lenses that are blue or like dye their hair blonde to make themselves look even more white. Um, so part of the reasons why we, we've become accustomed to that is that um, there's a sense of safety. You know, that's how our people have survived is to be as close to whiteness and as obedient to um, these white principles as possible. Um, we are now in... in uh, part of our cultural times when we're being called to action, right? AAPI folks are being called to action to really sit um, with these um, notions of, of being close to whiteness. Uh, that's how you find safety. We're being asked to reflect on it because there is a cost to that. And the cost is the subjugation of other racialized people, right? So, um, so yeah, the second reason to why we hold on to it is that it's, it's a place of safety for us. It's how our ancestors have been taught to survive in this world. And at the same time, we're being invited, we're called to action to reflect on that, to say, does this really serve us? <laughs> um, who really benefits when we are obedient, when we subjugate ourselves? and whose voices are lost in this process, right? So it's not an overnight thing that we can just throw something out and then go, okay, I am loud and proud and assertive. <laughs> That's really hard to do. And I'm, I'm still working on that um, with mentorship, with guidance, with self-development like um, to find my voice 
Um, and so I, I would strongly encourage folks who are interested in learning to like reclaim parts of their identity that have been like cut off because of survival that give yourself time to do this. Um, start with understanding your Asian values first, <laughs> um, then updating the pieces that are no longer congruent with who you are as a person. Um, then move into being more assertive, right? Claiming your voice again and, and, being, and taking up more space in this world. That takes skill, that takes development, that takes mentorship, mentorship and guidance. So those are the reasons why it's so hard to, um, you know, throw out something that have been with us for like hundreds of years now. Um, and I want to encourage folks that it's, um, it's a lifelong process to undo some of these harms. So please give yourself permission, uh, time and space to do that. So Shirley, I heard you talk about a couple of things. Can I just clarify to make sure I'm on yes. the right page with yes. you I'm on the same page? So you talked mm -hmm. about like how we have acquired privilege because of assimilation. Did I use the word privilege? You didn't. I'm very, I'm very careful. I'm very, very, I actually, it was actually on the tip of my tongue to say privilege. Yeah. You didn't use that word. I use that word. Did I use it in error or? Um, it's, it, I, I haven't figured this out yet, to be honest. Um, I don't okay. know if I like the word privilege when I speak about um, my access to education or my access to cultural capital, because I, I'm, I'm trying to take a, a structural lens to this. Um, you know, what privilege to me is advantage, what privilege means is immunity. So I might have certain um, advantages in one realm of my life. So for example, um, at home, uh, my uh, I had the the financial resources to um, get education, but the problem the problem with that <laughs> is that even though I'm a, I'm a working professional right now, me getting up to leadership positions, me um, having power in the political realm, in the legal realm, um, in the academic realm is so limited still. Mm -hmm. I might have a lot of influence or privilege within like my household. But as soon as I leave that setting, as soon as I step out in this world, like everything is continues to be hard and there continues to be these um, invisible ceilings that I that I hit. Um, so that's why I'm like, I don't know yet if I want to call that privilege. I think um, uh, maybe privilege in certain settings. But when I when I look at whether or not I have structural power to enforce those privileges, I don't know. And I feel like those privileges can be taken away from me like really instantly, right? I, I don't have any protections um, to keep those privileges in place. So it's not legalized anywhere. It's not like formalized culturally anywhere. Um, whereas white folks, um, they do. <laughs> they, they, their privilege is reflected in, in our legal system, in, in our criminal justice system, um, in the schooling system. And, and so they have uh, that kind of protection to keep their, their privilege um, in place. I love that you just said that because I feel like this is the struggle that so many of us have who are AAPI, who have access to certain resources and simultaneously are hitting, like you said, invisible ceilings in our experiences because we're not white. Mm -hmm. And the moment something goes wrong, right, in this world, and we just saw it with COVID, the moment something is off, we are scapegoated, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how precarious of a situation we're in. It's like, yeah, you have some privilege, but there's there's um, nuances to that. It's, it's 
uh, subject to certain things. And it doesn't matter how hard we try to um, be the perfect citizen, we are always otherized. We will always be asked questions of where are you from? No, where are you really from? Uh, because we're not white. <laughs> so I, think I that love this so much. It's so um, contingent on other things. You know, we cannot say, yes, I have privilege in this setting and in many other settings in life. We can only say we have privilege in, um, you know, maybe within your group of friends or maybe at the job that you're at. But then once you start to move up into leadership, into administration, uh, you don't see many of us there. Uh, we just broke into Hollywood. <laughs> you know, seeing Parasite win <laughs> at the Oscars was huge. Um, thinking about how hard these folks had to work to get to that spotlight. But we all know that next year, all that can be reversed. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they're not going to be in the spotlight again. And then they have to, again, work so hard just to get the uh, attention or acknowledgement. So it's constantly like going back to step one even if we think that we've made strides in, in getting some um, acknowledgement of who we are as people. So in a way, it's like, how could we not perpetuate this model minority myth, right? Like if we're on this hamster wheel where we're trying to, as a group of people, achieve the quote-unquote American dream that others have the quote-unquote privilege of having access to if they're white, and it's being sold as anybody can achieve this. How could we not? How could we not do these things where we are, you know, working really hard as a people group? How could we not be like conscientious and obedient and all these other things? In a way, it's almost like it's required of us. I think we all, a big part of it is we all really just want to feel safe, um, both in who we are mm -hmm. and also like where we're located, um, feel, feel safe in society and this can shift our cultural values and what we do, how we represent ourselves in order to feel safe. And I feel like this coronavirus pandemic in particular is kind of opening our eyes. I think in America, there's two main views on Asian Americans. There's either the model minority or the yellow peril. And while we've always felt that, um, well, a lot of well, a lot of Asian Americans have always felt that they're the mono minority. They have to live up to the successful stereotypes that are placed upon us. The I feel like the coronavirus pandemic is kind of opening our eyes that we're still a marginalized and discriminated group, or a group that's being discriminated. It's kind of been like a flip, sort of, in the past few in the past few months. And for me personally, it's like opened my eyes a lot too the underlying issues that I'd never really realized until now. Um, I want to highlight what Shirley uh, said about how the model minority myth kind of homogenizes Asian Americans. And so Asian Americans are like a very diverse group, right? There's, there's many different types of Asians. And I think a lot of times when the model minority myth is used in society, it's only highlighting one specific group or a few specific groups and not Asian Americans as a whole. And I think it's important to recognize the different ethnic identities that Asian Americans can have. Um, 
mainly Southeast Asian Americans like Thai, Vietnamese, uh, Cambodian. And I just want to point out this statistic that I found. A breakdown of college degree attainment um, of Asian ethnic groups shows that Cambodians and Laosians have a rate of less than 9.2%, while Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, and Koreans are above 40%. And this kind of is an example of why we need to reject the model minority myth and not associate being Asian with just being successful, being well-educated. It's not all Asian Americans have those opportunities given to them or have access to those opportunities. And that depends a lot on where we come from, what our situation is like. A large reason for this di large difference in the opportunities that um, Asian Americans have access to is that since 1975, over 1.2 million Southeast Asian refugees have entered the U.S. to escape political turmoil or war. Because of that, they're not, they don't have access to a lot of the same opportunities that, say, Chinese Americans or Japanese Americans may have access to when they're immigrating to the America in search of like the American dream. That's one reason why it's, I don't think it's okay to like homogenize diverse groups under one umbrella because or the opportunities we have access to are different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the resources each, um, I guess, category has are, are very different. For, uh, for my mom, she immigrated from Vietnam to the U.S. during the Vietnam War. And she's she was like a refugee. So she spent um, years in refugee camps just trying to be able to um, achieve like that opportunity and that chance to do something with her life after that war. Um, thankfully, she was fortunate enough to um, go to school, get education, you know, those, those ESL classes and basically like assimilate with the culture. But at the same time, um, going back to that whole concept of safety, she she has told me about um she's told me stories about how she's she's kind of been i guess pushed to act a certain way in order to fit in um and be given those same opportunities as other people but yeah i i agree with what you were saying kevin i feel like a lot of these different um groups of asian cultures have like they're given like they have different resources so it's it's not fair to kind of like combine them all into one one group yeah i i love um how you both are are bringing in intersectionality into this conversation so intersectionality means um when you're multiply minoritized so you're not just an asian identifying person but you are female identified um you identify as being part of the lgbtq community um that you have a disability uh, the more of these identities that you carry, the more um, difficult it is to to survive um, uh, in the America uh, in the U.S. context. So um, I think we've come full circles back to uh, the original comment. Uh, I think um, Kevin or Ethan, you made. Oh no, Ethan, <laughs> regarding how. Um, diverse we are as individuals and, and we're comprised of more than just what we look like, what our skin color looks like and what our hair color looks like, um, that it would be great to be um, known as uh, uh, an intelligent being because we have been focused on our goals and that we have put in the repetitions and the work to, to get to where we are. 
And so I think also to bring in class into this too, uh, a lot of folks um, of South Asians, those who are uh, refugees, those who are uh, immigrants, many of those folks occupy working class jobs uh, or part of the working poor or who are living in poverty, right? And so when we put this label of, well, you should be smart because you have black hair. <laughs> Just to imagine what that might, must feel like for a person who um, can't even make ends meet to put food on the table. When you are um, um, food impoverished, um, when you don't have housing, when you don't have the basics of being a human being, there's no pursuit of, of um, your goals and dreams. That'd be the last thing on your list, right? So, so I, I think um, if there's one thing that folks on this call can take away from is, is instead of just making some assumptions about who, you know, how this person might perform in, in our society, really take time to get to know all the layers of this person, right? And, and everything that has, has limited them and, and the reasons for why they cannot live a fulfilling or satisfying life. I think what you just said, Shirley, is kind of the building block to becoming anti-racist, regardless of which ethnic group you belong to. Understanding an individual and hearing their story, understanding the context that they grew up in and where they are now. Um, I think the model minority myth also kind of pits different minorities against each other. And I think given the current events that are going on in our country surrounding Black Lives Matter and murders of Black Americans, Black trans Americans, I think it's time for a lot of Asian Americans who may have in the past had underlying racism towards the Black community to step up and reject the model minority myth and support the Black Lives Matter movement. When Asian immigrants first come to the U.S., a lot of times their goal is to assimilate into Western culture. And they want, again, they want to feel safe. They want to feel secure. And this can lead a lot of them to kind of align themselves with the idea of being the superior minority, rejecting the Black population. They, they don't want to, align, want to align themselves with other minority groups and instead they want to align themselves more with the majority population. And this can lead to a lot of like generational racism towards other minority groups. It's kind of like at school where there's like, or there's that one popular kid who has this one idea and then everybody just grabs onto that idea, um, hoping to be popular, you know, it's kind of like that. I was just thinking about my aunts and uncles, like, I've been back to Singapore seven or eight times, I think, to visit my dad's family. And when the sun comes out, everybody brings along an umbrella or a parasol. It's like their personal sun protection with the goal of staying as white as possible, so to speak, like to not darken one's skin. And, you know, my mom being well-meaning well would oftentimes ask me as a kid, like, did you put your sunscreen on? Did you put your sunscreen on? Like, it wasn't just about, like, avoiding skin cancer. But I think it was just like, nobody, like, no, no, you shouldn't be so dark. Why are you getting so tan in the summer? There's That's not right. Like, you you know, and it's this 
I don't know if anybody else shares this experience, but it's like this anti-blackness that gets perpetuated. And I think it's perpetuated by the like Americanization process that Asian Americans go through when they arrive in the United States. And we're taught that in order to succeed, we need to distance ourselves from the bottom and align ourselves with uh, the dominant identity or culture. And that's all in an effort to feel safe and secure, I guess. Um, and to take it beyond the American context, um, Erica, thanks for reminding us that uh, British colonialism existed everywhere, right? There's there's this saying that like a lot of us have heard of is that um, the sun never sets on the British Empire, right? So that means that that's how much land they've colonized. They pretty much colonized every single um, time zone. <laughs> that's what that means? I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it, the sun never sets, right? That, that's that's how far reach they had. And um, last year when I was I was doing a tour of Asia, I went to Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Vietnam, Thailand. Everywhere I went, uh, we would always go to museums. I love I love going to museums because it teaches me about the culture. And every single place I went to would have this piece on like um, white colonialism. Like it, it was insane the pattern of it, and um, part of my history that I I um, didn't know of uh, because growing up I grew up in the Canadian context, so all we learned about was European history. Never got to learn about Asian history. So like you know now as an adult I I have to go learn these things. So and and same as as uh, North America, they were colonized by um, Europeans first. And so this, this, um, the idea of colorism, which was what Erica was, was talking about, um, the lighter you are, the more fair skin you are, uh, the higher up the echelon in life you are and, um, closer to whiteness, right? So whiteness is sort of the supreme standard by which all bodies are, are measured, uh, so as a result, we've we've seen it in many um, Asian cultures. There's, there's tons of of skin coloring or skin bleaching um, lotions, <laughs> um, things to ingest <laughs> to um, uh, increase the fairness of of our skin. You know, including more behavioral things like carrying an umbrella or slapping on sunscreen, just like what um, Erica said. Uh, so I I think. If folks are too overwhelmed in in BLM movements and you know trying to figure out where they fit into all of this, I often say you know start with oneself, like start from the inside out. Don't don't um don't go protesting if you don't know what that means to you, right? We we want to be able to liberate ourselves so that we can liberate everyone else. If you don't feel liberated, there is no way that you can spread that liberation. Right? So liberation means um, you can live your authentic life. You can be whoever you want to be. You can reclaim parts of yourself that have been denied to you. That's what liberation means. When you are you are living life, right? You're living your best life. <laughs> That's what it means. So um, if we start with colorism, uh, I, I loved how we already started talking about hearing um, from our parents, our ancestors regarding how do we uh, use language in describing um, different racialized groups. Starting there, right? Just 
take notice of when you use very prejudiced, um, discriminatory language. And I want to tell folks that um, none of us here, no AAPIs can ever be racist. Um, only white folks can be racist. Racism means that, we're again, going back to the privilege piece, is um, when we have institutional, social, historical, legal power to uphold our prejudices, right? So um, we can be prejudiced, racially prejudiced, but we can never be racist, right? Racist carries prejudice plus power. That's that's um, racism. So... Um, I, I wanted to make that clear because what's happening is um, white supremacy, again, have infiltrated our minds, like our colonized minds, telling us that we're also racist. Um, but we can't because we're not white. <laughs> um, and so when we go around telling, uh, you know, our, our, our people that, that what they're doing is racist, what we're doing is we're creating horizontal oppression, right? We're wounding horizontally. Uh, when really we want to combat, right, the structural, the vertical power, the top down. Top is white supremacy. <laughs> so we got to be very careful that what we're doing is is moving along this vertical axis and not this horizontal one. And that's why um, when I have conversations like these, I always I always make sure it's relational. I always make sure it's like, hey, who who are you as a person in relation to your cu culture? Um, right. We work on our own, our own healing. We eradicate our own um, white supremacist thinking without wounding one another. <laughs> so this call out culture, this you know, finger wagging of you, you're doing that wrong. Um, we can't do that to our peoples. We got we got to do it differently. Um, we can we can wave some fingers when we're ma we're um, addressing that that vertical uh, violence right top down and. Kevin had alluded to this top is, you know, white supremacy and the bottom who's at the bottom, uh, black, brown, indigenous folks. And then for us, AAPI folks, we're somewhere along that spectrum. And then model minority, how it fits into that is that we try to, uh, we try to use that so that we can get to the top. <laughs> that, that's, that's like our place of safety. So take, you know, how do we take accountability within that, that vertical structural power versus this horizontal um, wounding that, that we're doing. And if people are interested in, in, you know, the type of language in them use, um, I'm using, I draw a lot from, uh, Resma Menachem's work. Uh, he wrote a book called, uh, my grandmother's hands, um, and, and teaching folks how to address their racialized trauma. And again, he talks about, it starts with oneself, right? We gotta, we gotta look inwards first. We gotta take notice of the moments when, when we use racialized language, um, catch ourselves when we're calling ourselves racist and then reminding oneself like, no, I can't do that because I'm not white. We don't, I don't have the institutional power to enforce my beliefs. I can say that with my friends, but then, um, you know, out there in the real world, uh, the police isn't going to take my word and, 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 um, you know, power over other people. So, um, yeah, I wanted to bring that into our conversation so that we know as AIPA folks, like where do we need to do our work and how do we do it in a way that we are not wounding yeah. more of our people? Yeah, I apologize for I apologize for saying something about underlying racism. Um, thank you for like educating <laughs> me on that. No, no worries. Yeah, that's that's like a new perspective. I've I've kind of heard of that concept before where um, 
what you discussed, but I never really like looked into it that much. But yeah, thanks for ex- explaining it. So yeah, the languaging is racially prejudiced. Um, if if we are um, wanting to tell another racialized person like what they're saying is, is not ad- um, is not right, is it's very demeaning or dehumanizing. You can say, you know, I don't appreciate the racially prejudiced way of you describing something. Sorry, Erica, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I I super appreciate you re- restating that because I just wanted to clarify. So, like, even between groups of Asians, like, there is that racial prejudice, right? Like, you know, yeah. some people who are Chinese have really strong feelings about yes. people who are Japanese yes. and whatnot. And so... I guess my question for you, Shirley, because mm. I think that you have a ton of knowledge about this, and I love that you're sharing it on this platform, is that, you know, as APIs, if we could do, like, five steps to start dismantling this racial prejudice that mm. we may have internalized because of white supremacy or even because of cultures that we've grown up in, in ter- like, ourselves, what would be your five go-tos? Five steps. Five steps to become less racially prejudiced, according to Shirley Lay. <laughs> Thank you for the citation. I think that's one of my first. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I wanted to go. So okay, let, let me let me go back a little bit. So what I'm sharing with you is relevant in the U.S. context, right? So we got to look at the history of how people have been oppressed. Now. My, if, if I were invited to go to China to have this conversation, it's going to sound really different, right? Because the Han people in China are the dominant groups, right? So those are the groups that are, my, um, are um, racializing and minoritizing the Uyghur people, um, Tibetan folks, right? Um, <laughs> even the Taiwanese. <laughs> so um, I wanted to bring that context in. And um, if folks are, are wondering, um, you know, I, I, I want to be mindful of where everyone is uh, acculturated, right? Who's on this pod right now and listening, you know, they might question, well, um, they might have more historical knowledge of, of living as an Asian person in Asia, right? So uh, the, the social justice conversation would, would look different there. So what, what I'm talking about now uh, is only relevant um, to the U.S. context. Um, so I, I wanted to go back to what I said earlier about starting with oneself. Um, uh, so just taking notice every time you use a derogatory term or take notice every time you go, oh, this person's really dark or, oh, their darkness startled me or, oh, this person (laughs) looks a certain way and something about that makes me uncomfortable. Right. So even I, as a person who's steeped in this work, I, I have to do that all the time because I was raised um, in the North American context. And so I have a notion of what a, a perfect and I, I put in air quotes for folks who didn't see that um, perfect uh, um, person looks like. And so um, uh, just taking notice. Right. And taking notice without judgment of yourself. Because we got to be aware of this, AAPI folks, uh, we, uh, some of us come from a culture of, of shame, right? That's, <laughs> we, um, 
motivate ourselves with shame. So um, I want to invite people to take notice of that, right? So noticing when you are holding racially prejudiced thoughts and um, not get into the bubble of shame, all right? And so I, this is equivalent to white fragility, right? When white people get uncomfortable, get so guilty, they get so overwhelmed that they just stop all the entire conversation. So we got to do some of that work too, um, noticing when we're racially prejudiced. Um, the next step then uh, would be to do stuff like this, like what we're doing now, maybe not go on a pod, but <laughs> but have conversations with family and friends and start using um, some of the language that we're using in, in this podcast. Um, language is really powerful. Language helps us understand our internal experiences. Uh, this is where I uh, I draw some of my psychology <laughs> background into this too. Um, if we can use some of the social justice oriented language, um, anti-oppressive language, um, then we can start um, using words to label some of our experiences. Um, then I would then move into um, lots of literature reading. There's so much good stuff out there. I, I just recommended a book, My Grandmother's Hands. Um, I would highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in, in learning the language, in understanding their own racialized trauma and how that trauma perpetuates the oppression of other racialized beings, um, to go into the literature and then to then go back to your community and start dialoguing more, right? Practicing. Um, this is some of the work that I'm doing with my um, some of the graduate psychology students on, on my campus is I'm inviting them to start dialoguing. The more you talk about the stuff, the more fluid you are and the more comfortable you are. And, and then the last piece to go with that is that it takes, um, it takes thick skin. It takes lots of courage, right? So I, I want to recognize Kevin and Ethan on this, on this pod today um, and Erica too, uh, that we're, <laughs> sorry, Erica just made a face. So we're, um, we're putting ourselves on the line here. And this is what social justice work is about. We are telling people, we're telling the public, we're willing to be humbled by this experience. We're willing to be, to be called into conversations, we're willing to be corrected and, and to learn from that experience. And we're willing to do that a million times just to get it right. So it, it, those are, so, you know, those are the few steps that I would, I think I said four. Oh, you can stretch it out to five somehow. <laughs> Add another step in there. <laughs> um, and, oh, step five, listen to this pod. Start here. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much, Plug. yeah. I think sure. um, coming into recording this, great. Ethan and I were a little bit nervous because um, we were afraid we we might say something wrong or might get something wrong. Yeah. But um, I want to thank you for just thank you and Erica for just being good mentors, I guess, and teaching us and allowing us to allowing us to say things wrong and attempt to get it right. You know, I th I I super appreciate y'all having this platform and um, surely just you sharing your knowledge and for offering gentle 
like correction, like when I use the word privilege, you know, like, here, let me clarify this, right? Like, I just so appreciate you being, you know, non-defensive and non-judgmental. And I think in order for us to truly have these conversations at a level where they're life-changing on the inside and out, we have to adopt those two postures. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, I um, appreciate the recognition, Erica. And, and I want to say, um, I don't know if I'm completely right, right? So these are some of my understandings based on how I interpret the literature. Um, and I want to say that this work is dynamic. So what I say today is not going to be relevant next year or, or two years down the road. Um, so I, I think um, there needs to be that understanding when we're going into this work is that we need to continually um, evolve and to <laughs> bring Bruce Lee's work into this. Um, we got to move like water (laughs) and no, that's not cheesy. Um, we got to move like water, meaning like we gotta, um, and, and this is, this is something that I take great pride in, right? My ancestors, they've really been fluid in adapting themselves, um, um, to the North American context. And I know that they've been adaptive. Otherwise I wouldn't be alive today. Um, so, uh, being flexible, allowing yourself to um, be humbled and to know that this is a moving target, that uh, what we're being held accountable to do next year is going to be really different. We're learning more and more and more as to how people are being oppressed and more and more people now have the courage and the platform to speak up. So I want to say I don't know everything. I, in fact, there's so much more that I I, I need to learn um, but that it's okay that it, it really social justice work is about the journey, um, lifelong, a lifelong one. So, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate, um, uh, everyone on this call and, 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 um, putting it all in line out there as well. Um, because I, I can't be me without you all being you, right? Like the only way that I have the stamina and the courage and the energy to do this is because of what each one of you bring to this conversation. I super love what you just said. So this phrase just popped in mind. Would you mind me sharing? And if it's not accurate, can you correct me? <laughs> are, you, are you asking me? Yes, I am. Yes. Sounds good. Okay. So what popped into mind is adaptation versus assimilation. Well, I was just thinking like with what you said about adapting, right? Like that we're having to adapt to things being constant, like constantly changing. And I know that for me, you know, having grown up the way that I did, like, I like rules. I really like things to be like a certain way. So I know how to do it right. Yes. And what I hear you saying with adaptation is that things are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And so this is where being mindful and learning and listening and continuing to learn and to listen is super important as opposed to just like assuming that, okay, now that I know this one thing, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to fit myself into what I believe is a set of rules and just operate from those rules. Right. Yes. And I, and just to be open and transparent, like I'm still figuring out what that means to me. And like, this is why it's so hard for me to confront my parents or to confront my, my direct report. It's still a huge, huge struggle and to figure out what that means. Um, so I love it, like assimilation, adaptation, and we'll throw another term in there, resistance. So resistance slash protest, right? Just 
which means that it's it moves beyond adaptation. It's like, why do I need to adapt anyways? <laughs> like, who set those rules? Who does it benefit? Like, do I get a say in that? And does it me- make me feel like a whole liberated person? So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to, um, actually, that's a really good reflection of my journey. <laughs> really starting with the simulation and then adaptation, because then I started saying, you know, to uh, people um, who have like interviewed me for jobs or different positions, I would talk about all like the great things that I've done to adapt it to this culture. You know, I'm studious, I'm hardworking, you know, all the model minority stuff I used to promote myself. Um, it, it actually got me, you know, <laughs> to a certain point in life. Um, and now it's like shifting into resistance and protest and what that means to me. Um, so that's been some of my own um, transformation. So thank you, Erica. That was awesome. That's, this is why I love conversations. It, it, it's, it sparks me to self-reflect on where I'm at and how do I understand, you know, different terms and, and um, ideas regarding social justice. Yeah, I love how we're not only learning from others or not only not only learning about the topic we're also learning about ourselves Mm -hmm. yeah i think identity comes into this um ties into model minority um a ton and um i guess to tie this all together and conclude what advice would you two have um for someone struggling with with their identity um being affected by the model minority myth so my perspective is I think a little bit different because I don't have the same um, education and training in social justice and um, the work that you do. So the first thing that came to mind just from the clinical lens that I use is I think it's helpful for us to just observe and describe the beliefs and judgments and feelings that we have about ourselves and others. Right, Because if we don't know what those are, they're going to be hard to change. And so to observe and describe in a way that is non-judgmental, right? For example, um, I've been noticing recently that every time I'm out driving, when I see someone who's black, like I just, you know, in my brain, in my heart, just offer some loving kindness. And prior to this moment in time, politically, I think those moments were a little bit fewer and far between just because I was not in the same place where I'm doing the work that I'm doing internally in terms of learning to become anti-racist. And so just recognizing like, wow, these are people I've not, like, I don't know that person walking on the street, but like, I wouldn't have really looked at them before. And now I'm looking at them and considering like, wow, I wonder what's going on for them. Like, I'm just very much... Like, I'm just much more conscientious, I think. Um, and so that is one of the things that I wanted to change. It's like, I want to really practice just observing people where they are, you know, really considering context instead of using lenses that I've put on before, maybe that I've been taught or maybe that I've acquired without really being aware of it, um, to assess and judge. So for me, that's like, I think the the big step, the first step. For sure. Becoming more aware. So Ethan, your question was, um, where should we begin with our identity work in relation to BLM movements, in relation to being um, 
in the model minority myth like just some just some advice to people who deal with that like identity um the the pressures that come with it that type of thing i guess i i'm going to bring it back to the re- relational context is um find your people find your person that makes you feel like a whole worthwhile value human being find that person who makes you feel like you're somebody let's start there first and sometimes you might have to start with your that somebody might be you right yourself um that you feel the safest when you're when you're on your own and you can see all the depths and layers of you so find people in your life where you can be seen first then you learn what it means to be live, living an authentic full whole life then you could start sharing some of that gifts with other people so if you would like to be said you know hello to you on the street by a stranger <laughs> you got to know that first then all right then you bring it to the world and you try it out and then once you try it out you bring it back to your people and you go oh my gosh i messed that up it felt horrible and then you need people to go you know what i don't think it's horrible like you were really courageous you were like on the ball you tried these things here's some other things to try so starting there first um um i i love i love what erica said um observing right so being in relationship requires observation um and requires non-judgmental observation and using the the terminology too so um observe and i want to tack a little bit more onto that observe within relationship within community start with one person then you find more like-minded folks and you bring them into your army bring them into your tribe yeah thank you so much for that advice i think it's useful for a lot of people including myself i think i'm still trying to find who i am and trying to live authentically i'm still working on that and i think it's a process i'll continue to be working on for a while but i'm really appreciative for this conversation and continuing to open my eyes towards the issues that I'm facing both internally and the issues that I see in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um for me, I'm really big on self-development and I think that it's important for people to realize that self-development isn't like it's a lifetime. It's like a lifelong journey that you go on. It's not there's not like an end goal where uh, you get to a certain point and you're like, "Okay, yeah, I'm done developing myself," right? You got to keep going and I think that whole the whole process is is really important. It's so fantastic that the two of you are starting at this, you know, at the age of 15, 16. I'm so Super excited for (laughs) (laughs) y'all. I mean, this is the part, like, it's, you know, back to the community thing. Um, You, you three are part of my community because I, I, I feel like you hear me, you see me, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is a very clear demonstration of, me really enjoying pieces that each one of you bring and wanting to be part of that. I feel the energy, I feel the momentum and the inspiration, and it feels so good to be in company with you all. So um, uh, these are some of the things that folks who are listening to this pod can, can start to, to, to cultivate in their lives. My hope is that at some point in time, we can wrap pot stickers together. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Fun. <laughs> you got to teach us, Erica. <laughs> oh yeah, I will. I will make it. <laughs> I will make it. I'll make I'll the filling. Them. All right, yeah. I'll, I'll do the eating. 
Um, before we head off, um, do you two want to plug yourself or um, give our viewers like some details about where they can go if they want to learn a little bit more about your work? Like Instagrams, resources, uh, if they want to reach out to you, anything like that. I don't know. So for folks who are interested in, in finding more about me, uh, so I'm, I work at a university counseling center at Pacific University. So I, I'm not in private practice. So for anybody who's looking for, um, for counseling or therapy, unfortunately, um, well, not unfortunately, like you, you would have to be enrolled as a student at Pacific University. Um, but I do have um, a, a weekly webinar series called Rising from the Margins that I post um, on Pacific University's YouTube channel. Um, each of the series, uh, each of the episodes, I talk about stuff like this. Right. So I'll I'll bring up a, a social justice related issue. I'll I'll put a critical lens to it. And then I talk about, you know, what are we going to do about it? Um, I have some conversations with some of my favorite people um, in the world and I bring them on on the webinar as well. So uh, that stuff isn't just open to Pacific University students. Um, you and everyone who's listening to this pod is is um, uh, invited to jump onto the um, YouTube channel um, at Pacific University and you will have access to that, um, to the webinars. I'm so totally going to watch that right after this. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds pretty Increase cool. my viewings. <laughs> For sure. That is awesome. Um, yeah, so I'm a clinician who works for a private group practice. And so we do a particular form of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. And that tends to be like my niche in terms of where... Um, people find me so it's Portland DBT and then you know there's the who are we kind of page I can't remember exactly where it is but that's generally where I'm found so these conversations get to be like um, things that I love to participate in that are different from the work that I do mm -hmm. and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool logging off I guess thank you thank yeah. you bye see ya Thank you for listening to The Root Problem, a podcast brought to you by your hosts, Ethan Durham and Kevin Lay from Project Lotus. For more information on mental health in the Asian American community, please check out our website at www.theprojectlotus.org, as well as our Instagram, at Project Lotus Oregon. To access a crisis text line, text HOME to 741741. It has been our pleasure. Tune in next time. Thank you. Mm -hmm.